Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 213. We'll begin the scroll of Lamentations with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about submission and the politics of illusion. Song of Songs is the Passover scroll. Ruth, as we said in the previous episode, is the Shavuot scroll. Lamentations, which we begin in this episode and conclude in the next, is the Ninth of Av scroll. The Ninth of Av is a fast day commemorating the destruction of the First Temple in 586 BCE at the hands of the Babylonians and the Second Temple in 70 CE at the hands of the Romans. Incidentally, up until the 20th century, the Romans were regarded, arguably, as the great villain of Jewish history because of this. It's a pretty safe bet to say that Lamentations was composed in the period immediately after the destruction of the first temple and not before. Tradition tells us that the author of the scroll was Yirmiyahu, particularly because Yirmiyahu went on at great lengths in the eponymous prophetic book, about how the kingdom of Judah was doomed to destruction and exile because of its corruption, hubris, and sinfulness. That Yirmiyahu also lived through the conquest and the exile bolsters the traditional argument, but modern scholars look at the poetry and cannot square the stylistic circle between this scroll and the book of Jeremiah. Four of the five chapters in this scroll are acrostics. The third chapter is a triple acrostic. The fifth chapter, which is not an acrostic, has 22 lines of poetry mirroring the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There are stylistic differences between the five chapters, which prompted some to argue that there were five poets at work here, but it could just as well have been one poet trying out five different styles. But the bigger question for me is, why acrostic poems? It's not the equivalent of writing a series of laments in Comic Sans, but it's a weird choice. Acrostics don't leave much room for the poet to write freely. If we hearken back to the acrostics in the Psalms, the psalmist used a lot of formulaic language to fit the demands of the structure. Fortunately, Lamentations doesn't fall back too much on formula. And if it does, it is overshadowed by the powerful imagery it evokes. We cannot escape, as Alter describes, this panorama of horror. The Hebrew name for Lamentations comes from the first word in chapter 1, Echa, which means alas, or as Robert Alter translates it, how, as in, quote, how she sits alone, the city once great with people. In one verse, the poet presents us with a solitary woman, and then transforms her into a metaphor for Jerusalem, the city to where pilgrims once came by the hundreds of thousands, now is a ruin, the result of a different kind of pilgrimage, one of soldiers coming to destroy her. Quote, she weeps on through the night, and her tears are on her cheek. She has no consoler from all her lovers. All her friends have betrayed her, have become enemies to her. And even worse, quote, the foes saw her and they laughed over her disasters. We are in this predicament for a simple reason, quote, an offense did Jerusalem commit, therefore she became despised. But this doesn't prevent the poet from calling out to God for help, quote, see Adonai, my affliction, for the enemy is boasting, the foe has laid his hand on all her treasures, for she has seen nations come into her sanctuary. 
of whom I charge, they must not come into assembly with you. All her people groaned, seeking bread. They gave their treasures for food to revive their failing lives. See, Adonai, and look, for she has become cheapened. But the poet cannot neglect to point out that all of these tragedies have come from God because this is punishment, and it's punishment well-deserved, because, quote, Righteous is Adonai, for I have rebelled against him. Chapter 2, the second lament, focuses on God's ruthless anger and the destruction that comes in its wake. Quote, The master obliterated, had no mercy, all of Jacob's dwellings brought to the ground, profaned, a kingdom and its nobles. He hacked down in smoldering wrath the whole horn of Israel, pulled back his right hand from before the enemy, and burned in Jacob like a white-hot fire consuming all around. And there was no one to lead the people out of this disaster, no king, no officials, no prophets, no one. In the face of all the devastation and suffering, the poet is almost out of words. Quote, how can I bear witness for you? What can I liken to you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I compare to you and console you, O virgin, Zion's daughter? For great as the sea is your breaking, who can heal you? The only consolation the poet can offer is advice. Quote, Arise, sing out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of Adonai. Raise your palms to him over the life of your babies faint with famine at the corner of every street. To whom have you acted thus? Should women eat their fruit, the dandled babes? Should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the master? Chapter 3 brings the poet himself into focus. Quote, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Me he drove off, led away. Darkness and no light. Just to me he comes back, turns his hand against me all day. He wasted my flesh and my skin. He shattered my bones. He built up against me, encompassed me with misery and suffering. He made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He walled me in. I could not go out, piled heavy bronze fetters upon me. Even though I cried out and shouted, he blocked my prayer. He walled in my way with hewn stone. He twisted my paths. A lurking bear he was to me, a lion in hiding. Who can recover from such a state where all the odds are stacked against him? Well, the poet, of course. And why? Because, quote, I yet hope Adonai's kindness has not ended, for his mercies are not exhausted. They are renewed every morning. Great is your faithfulness. My portion is Adonai, I said, therefore I yet hope for him. Good is Adonai for those who look to him for the person who seeks him out. Good that he hopes in silence for rescue from Adonai. But God's rescue can only come when everyone acknowledges past wrongs and sinfulness. Quote, let us seek out and plumb our ways that we come back to Adonai. Let us lift up our heart on our palms to God in the heavens which is what the poet proceeds to do for the remainder of the chapter. Quote, I called your name, O Adonai, from the bottommost pit, my voice you have heard. Do not shut up your ear to my sigh, to my cry. You drew close on the day I called you. You said, do not fear. You pleaded, O master, my cause. You redeem my life. You have seen, O Adonai, the wrong done me. Grant me justice. This scroll section of the Tanakh so far has been a rollicking, crazy collection of texts. Song of Songs was a highly charged erotic poem that over the centuries have been passed off or have been tried to be passed off as a metaphor for the Jewish people's love of God. But really, 
Ruth was a quiet polemic against the exclusivist Jewish supremacist rhetoric of Ezra. And now we have Lamentations, which, from the very first handful of verses, strikes a tone we don't often hear, or like to hear, when it comes to the Jewish nation. Lamentations begins with passivity and meekness. It begins with submission. What follows is compounded by exhaustion, both physical and spiritual. How did we get here? Well, the poet tells us. The prophet Yirmiyahu also tells us. In episodes 113 and 114, I discussed the prophet Yirmiyahu's showdown with Hananiah ben Azur. Yirmiyahu was in the temple courtyard where he was tearing a strip off the king and Judean elites for fomenting revolt against the overwhelming might of Babylonia. During his tirade, he mentions how false prophets make all kinds of proclamations and predictions about the fate of Judah, and they do not and will not come to pass. The only way forward, he says, is to submit to the Babylonians to stave off the destruction that will come if they resist. Yirmiyahu goes as far as to bring a yoke and yoke himself to it to drive home that point. At which point, the prophet Hananiah ben Azur steps up to him in the temple courtyard and prophesies that God will smash the Babylonians and their king. Yirmiyahu replies, that it's very nice for a prophet to prophesy something positive for a change, but, quote, only when the word of the prophet comes true can it be known that Adonai really sent him. So, Hananiah takes the yoke off Yirmiyahu's neck and breaks it. And scene. In his essay, False Prophets, written eight years before the founding of the State of Israel, philosopher Martin Buber considers this scene in the context of a larger consideration of politics, patriotism, and the dangers of nationalism. He wrote, quote, I am always deeply moved when I come to this passage and always learn from it anew. Of all the prophets, Jeremiah is the only one who knew he was elected to his office at the very hour of his birth, in accordance with the gravity of the historical juncture and the decision it dictated. He felt that the hand of God had touched his mouth, and with that touch had enabled him to speak the words of God. Later in the same paragraph, Buber observes that everything Yirmiyahu did was in response to God's command, including placing the yoke across his neck and shoulders as a symbol of submission to Babylonia. And yet, quote, in spite of all this, he was silent when the bar was broken and went his way. Buber asks why. Why did the spokesperson for God just walk away? He knew what he was saying about submitting to the Babylonians was true. Why would he let Hananiah have the last word about this critically important issue? Buber then tells us, quote, In spite of everything, there were still things he did not know. Hananiah had spoken like a man who knows it all. Jeremiah had heard him speak like a man who knows it all. But there were still things that Jeremiah himself did not know. God had indeed spoken to him only an hour before, but this was another hour. History is a dynamic process, and history means that one hour is never like the one that has gone before. So who is right? Who should we listen to? Yirmiyahu, who called for submission to Babylon's power, or Hananiah, who also prophesying, stated that God would deliver the Babylonians into our hands. Hananiah, Buber goes on to say, was a, quote, forthright patriot 
and he was convinced that being patriotic meant being as he was. He was convinced that Jeremiah had no love whatsoever for his country, for if he had, how could he have expected his people to bend their necks to the yoke? Sound familiar? Hanania, as patriot, wanted to strengthen the people's resolve in the hour of danger. He also happened to align himself with the king and Judean elites, but that's not the basis for his claim to prophecy or the message he delivered. But Buber says what he tried to do was not strengthen the people, but strengthen an illusion. Yirmiyahu sought to protect the people from illusions by forcing them to contend with the harsh, impending reality. But many folks don't like the look of reality. Reality, most of the time, really sucks. For our ancestors in Judea, the weeks and months leading up to the totally anticipated Babylonian assault on the homeland was the harshest of all realities. The false prophet, of which Hanania is clearly one, quote, feeds on dreams and acts as if dreams were reality. The true prophet lives by the true word he hears and must endure having it treated as though it held only true for some ideological sphere, morals, or religion, but not for the real life of people. Buber, writing in 1940 British Mandatory Palestine, states, quote, We have no Jeremiah at this juncture, neither have we a Michyahu ben Imla." who is another true prophet mentioned in 1 Kings 22. But at every street corner, you are likely to run into Hananiah, or standing slightly to the right, his colleague Zedekiah, the son of Hananah, with horns of iron or cardboard on his temples, an empty air issuing from his mouth. Brilliant or insignificant, he is always the same. False prophets, Buber says, are doubly dangerous. By selling the politics of illusions, wild dreams, and ideals... They push a politics in which one encounters the other as an object to be used, abused, and dominated. In so doing, false prophets also prevent the realization of the noble historical vocation of the Jewish people and a more humane politics in which one encounters others as subjects, people to be seen, understood, and negotiated with. If Buber believed but there's not one Jeremiah to be found to keep Hananiah in check in 1940. I wonder what he would say about the Jewish world 80 plus years later, which does not lack for Hananias and Zedekiahs in countless Facebook groups or substacks or podcasts or cable news channels preaching Jewish power and strength in the face of terror or simple adversity. Lamentation shows us in the starkest of terms what happens when you follow Hananiah as the Jewish people did in 597 BCE, in 586 BCE, in 67 CE, and arguably on and off for the last 50 plus years. We don't have a strong track record of political leadership that practices a form of politics that sustains us as a people for the long haul. To use Buber's terminology, we have a lot of leaders who see the world in zero-sum, I-it terms, where others are regarded as objects, and if you give an inch to them, you may as well lose a yard. Instead of the more relational I-you that regards others as people like you and me that want pretty much the same things, like safety and dignity and wanting to see your kids grow up without being shot at close range with rubber bullets. It is true that the kingdom of Judah had a Jewish king on the throne for almost 350 years, which is great, 
if you were born any time in the kingdom's first 275 years, let's say. Israel, the state has been around for 70 plus years, 73 years. That's not a long time compared to the previous iteration, nor in relation to other present-day developed countries. There are people alive today who lived in a world without an Israel. Keep in mind as well that the Crusader kingdoms lasted 192 years before being cleansed from the eastern coast of the Mediterranean by the Mamluks. The Crusader kings would surely have looked upon their kingdoms as eternal, blessed by God, and fixed in the world as much as gravity, even in its waning years. So what could have been done to prevent what Lamentations describes? What would have happened in Judea had the king heeded Yirmiyahu's warning? Could a policy of submission have even been possible with the existing leadership or the mood of the body politic that clearly preferred Hanania's messaging to Yirmiyahu's? The same question could be asked today. What would Israel look like today without an occupation slash annexation? Could the Israeli government adopt such a policy with the existing governing coalition or the mood of the Israeli electorate that seems to prefer the status quo, however untenable, to any less occupation-y alternative? Could those in power in Israel conceive of the others in Israeli society as equally human and equally worthy of compassion? Could Israeli society submit to the idea that they might have to make painful concessions unilaterally? It's hard to imagine. But we have lamentations to portray for us in stark terms what happens when we don't listen to Yirmiyahu. And we hear it recited aloud in our synagogues every ninth of Av every year. So it's not like we can say we didn't know. We just have to decide whether we want to keep dreaming or face reality before, quote, the master became like an enemy, obliterated Israel, obliterated all her citadels, laid in ruins her fortresses, and made abundant in Judah's daughter, wailing and woe. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Tell a friend about Tanakhcast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Tanakhcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast at patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 214, when we conclude the Scroll of Lamentations with chapters 4 and 5.